hope you enjoy this message from South City C3, a location of C3 Church, Christchurch. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to have you here. And I'm going to special welcome to our Filipino friends. Magandang umaga. Sayen nonglahat. How did I go? I, th- I think I'm right. We're, we're blessed to have lots of Filipino people in this church and we love their faithfulness. And it was great too to have Calvin speaking to us. I've lost sight of you, Calvin, but Calvin's got a wonderful message and I hope we ministry and I hope we hear lots more from Calvin. Um, now, we had a few little problems with my uh, slides this morning and the tech team, I hope, have come to the rescue and Jared and others have tried to get my, my files from pages so this system will work. Have we got that first one there, Robert? Yes, good, okay. So that's a little outline of where we're going. I'm going to be talking a bit about prophecy, not, not prophecy so much ahead, but prophecy in the past, prophecy that has been fulfilled. Um, And some of these prophecies were recorded thousands of years ago and some that have even come to pass in the last hundred years and are still being fulfilled today. God has a plan for the history of this world and there are clear Bible prophecies that help locate us on God's timeline. Before I say that, I forgot to make a special welcome to Christoph. Christoph, thank you. Christoph was the youth pastor here for many years and we just loved his enthusiasm. Uh, Also a special welcome to Malcolm Campbell who I saw somewhere. Thank you Malcolm, a wonderful man of God. And I hope and don't don't embarrass this couple but also a special thanks and welcome to Ashley's parents, Martin and Sandy. Welcome along. Okay. (laughs) Now, where did I get to? God, God has a good plan for us a plan of blessing beyond our imaginations for those who follow Jesus. God's timeline could be portrayed very simply as follows. Creation, fall of man, redemption through Jesus, the church age, the return of Jesus. Where are we now? We're in the church age. The church is still here. Yet the Bible speaks of a time when believers in Jesus will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord. It's easy to casually think about the return of Jesus is somewhere in the never-never. We believe it is a Bible truth, yet in practice live as though this is a long, long way away. I hope my message this morning will help us realise that Jesus' return may be nearer than we think and will provoke us to live our lives ready and waiting for his coming. 1 Thessalonians 4 describes his coming. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Jesus said he would come back to to this world to take his bride, the church, that's you and me, to be with him forever. When I say I'm going to speak on prophecy, I suspect that some people will be excited and some might feel suspicious. Both reactions are okay. I'm not an expert on prophecy, but I want to share some of the things 
that have encouraged me. In 1 Thessalonians 5 we read, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. From this verse we see the Thessalonians were well informed of the times and seasons and knew that the day of the Lord was coming. As a church we do well to have an understanding of the times and seasons, of the times and seasons that we live in. My interest in this topic started when as an 18 year old I made a decision to serve the Lord. I had read Matthew 25 where Jesus spoke about the signs of his returning, then I started to hear some messages on prophecy and I was hooked. How amazing. The Bible prophesied of future world events, sometimes to the very year. And these events were being fulfilled as I was a boy growing up. Especially God's promises concerning the Jews, the nation of Israel and Jerusalem. A city and land in our news recently, where enmity between Arabs and Jews has erupted again with tragic consequences. Sadly, the Bible predicts there is much worse to come. So what should our attitude be towards prophecy? About a quarter of the Bible is predictive prophecy, and yet often we don't hear much about it. If I just read all the scriptures on prophecy, this morning it would take about 17 hours. <laughs> and our service would finish about 5 o'clock tomorrow morning. Don't worry, I won't do that. <laughs> Got one amen. <laughs> don't worry, I won't do that, though I have a good number of scriptures to share. In Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All scripture includes prophecy. And I believe, treated well, prophecy shows that God's word is true, builds up our faith, and encourages us, encourages us to live the way we should. So what are some of the key purposes of prophecy? Prophecy demonstrates God's reality, his sovereignty, and foreknowledge of future events. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10 says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. This was spoken in a time when there was quite a bit of worship uh, of idols and people were making an idol, cutting it out, painting it, doing whatever they did. And God was challenging, challenging the people and saying, I'm God, the idols can't do this, but I can declare the end from the beginning. So prophetic fulfillment encourages our confidence in the Lord, teaches us that the return of Jesus is closer, getting closer, and should provoke us to live our lives looking to him and more devoted to him. Where should we be looking in life? I like this little com commentary. The psychologist says we should look within. The optimist says to look ahead. The opportunist, opportunist says to look around. The pessimist says to look out. But the Bible says to look up for your redemption is drawing near. Look up, for your redemption is drawing near. Proofs that prophecies are correct. 
there are two prominent areas where God reveals the future through the Bible. These are the life of Jesus and the history of the Jews. So we have various prophecies about Jesus the Messiah and I'll quickly skim through some of these because there's, there's about 300 of them and I haven't got time for that. Isaiah 6 verse 14 The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9 For unto us a child is born his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God Everlasting Father the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 53 especially is an amazing prophetic chapter about Jesus, including that he was despised and rejected by men. He was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He was pierced for our transgressions. By his wounds we are healed. He poured out his soul to death. He bore the sins of many. And we'll all be familiar with the fulfillment of those. We don't have time this morning, but there are many, many Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. And I did have a slide about that, but it perhaps hasn't come up, is that? Yes, there we go, lots and lots of things. His birth at Bethlehem, and all those things about the life of Jesus that we're very familiar with. Proof that all these things were spoken in the Old Testament hundreds of years before Jesus came, and they all happened. And I just sort of had an interesting realisation a, a day or two ago, that Jesus confirmed these things. And after his resurrection, in Luke 22, verse 44, Jesus said, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All those things were spoken, and Jesus said, yes, they were fulfilled. The law of Moses, the Psalms, the prophets. So we can see that God's word is true. We can see and accept all these prophecies. But for the last 2,000 years, the Jews have struggled to accept that Jesus is the Messiah. Let me give you a very brief summary of the history of the Jews. The Hebrews, later to be called the Jews, were God's chosen people. God promised blessings to his people through Abraham, including possession of the land of Canaan, this was known as the Promised Land and includes the region of modern-day Israel. Robert, have you got a slide there that will show, show that, please? So the, uh, the left-hand picture is the Middle Eastern Bible Times, the green section there I think is what's called the Fertile Crescent. The land of Canaan is on the, as it was called then, is on the far left hand side. And that was the promised land that God said to Abraham he would give to him. And then on the right hand side we've got superimposed the modern day uh, countries. And there's a little sliver there that you can see which is still called Canaan in this, oh no, it's got Israel, it shows that little bit of land which is Israel. Okay, so just going back then to the time of Abraham, in Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, go from your country. Now, his country, I think Abraham was 
just at the top of the Persian Gulf there, there's a land called Sumer, but below that is a place called Ur. And I think that's where Abraham started. And God said to Abraham, go from your country to a land I will show you, and I will bless you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And they came to the land of Canaan, and God said, to your offspring I will give this land. And again in verse 14, all the land you see, this was when Abraham was in Canaan, and he was looking out, all the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. After, after Abraham, who lived around 1900 BC, the Old Testament goes through the history of the patriarchs and the Hebrews, their slavery in Egypt, how they multiplied, were led out by Moses, given the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses, and eventually returned back to the Promised Land in around 1250 BC. The Israelites were promised God's blessing if they obeyed him, and we see something of a golden age with King David and Solomon. However, the Israelites were also warned that if they did not serve God, they would be conquered by the enemies and scattered among the nations. This scattering is mentioned in various scriptures. In Leviticus 26, God said, If you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. And in verse 33 says, I will scatter you among the nations. Take special notice of that disciplining sevenfold, seven times for your sins. We'll talk about that later. Psalm 44 says, You have made us like sheep for the slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. Ezekiel 12. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I disperse them among the nations and scatter them among the countries. Sadly, this scattering did happen. It started when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Israel around 606 BC, and the Hebrews spent 70 years in captivity in Babylon. From that time, for the next two and a half thousand years until 1967, Jerusalem has always been under the control of a conquering foreign power. That's pretty significant. God said he was going to let the enemies get the better of them. It started with Nebuchadnezzar, and for the next two and a half thousand years, the Jews weren't in control of Jerusalem. When Christ was born, the Jerusalem was under the occupation of the Romans, but Jesus did not provide a military deliverance. He offered salvation through forgiveness of sins. Some Jews accepted this, the majority did not. This was prophesied in Matthew 12:21, where it talks about the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was talking about Jesus being rejected by the Jews, but becoming the cornerstone, the foundation of our faith. And in Romans 11 it says, <coughs> Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. The book of Acts was a turning point where we see God's salvation and promises were for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. The word Gentile refers to all people who are not Jews. In Acts 11 verse 18, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
This was a big change of thinking for the Jews, who for the last two or three thousand years had considered them, and rightly so, as God's chosen people. But with the message of Jesus, everyone in the world was now included into God's, into God's kingdom. <coughs> so let's talk a bit about the returning of the Jews and the rebirth of Israel. <coughs> Sorry. For nearly 2,000 years, Jerusalem continued to be under foreign do domination. However, God had promised an eventual restoration of the Jewish people back to their ancient homeland. In Zechariah verse 10. And I'm just mentioning some of these verses so you can see where, where they are in the Bible. See that this is what God said and this is what, what happened. In Zechariah 10. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries shall they remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. In Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the, and from the west I will gather you. Verse 6. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. In the early 1900s, momentous events started for the Jews. Thank you, good man. Just what I needed. Thank you, Brent. In the early 1900s, momentous events started for the Jews. During World War I, in 1917, the British captured Palestine from the Turks. And we may have a photo of that, Robert, perhaps. And uh, anyway, there's a famous photo of General Allenby walking into Jerusalem after the Turks surrendered. Yes, there we go, General Allenby walking in. <coughs> there's, a, there's a story about this too the British had come up towards Jerusalem and the normal plan of attack sort of military plan of attack in those days was you came up to the place you brought up the artillery and you let them have it and gave them a barrage of artillery assault and then you'd send in the infantry Allenby apparently was reluctant to do this and he thought, no, I don't want to bomb Jerusalem. This is just amazing holy city. So the story goes that, and I think it, if I've got it right, it's based on a, a scripture that says, as birds flying, so the Lord will deliver Jerusalem. And so Allenby arranged for the planes they had in those days to fly over Jerusalem, sort of as a bit of an intimidation thing. The the Turks saw it and surrendered. So without having to, have to fight for it, he walked in and the British took over Jerusalem. About the same time in England, <coughs> there, was a, there was a swing towards helping the Jews who had been this persecuted people for hundreds of years. The history of Europe and Russia is littered with stories of uh, persecution of the Jews. But in 1917, there was a famous statement called the Balfour Declaration was made to recognise that, that uh, Palestine should be a homeland from the Jew, for the Jews. 
<coughs> the significant part there is His Majesty's Government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jews and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object. And it also goes on to say that the rights of the other people in Palestine should be protected too. <coughs> so from this time, time on, the return of Jews to Palestine gathered pace. And after the Holocaust of World War II, even more Jews arrived. And in 1948, the Jews declared themselves an independent nation. Almost immediately, the Arab nations attacked. Yet against the odds, Israel survived. By 1967, the Arab forces had regained strength and were about to attack again. They said to the United Nations, go away, just clear out. <coughs> the Israelis could see what was happening and they launched a preemptive strike against three Arab nations. And uh, this was very decisive. And the small Israeli nation of three million people was absolutely outnumbered, massively outnumbered by about 100 million Arabs. <coughs> but again, Israel won this war in just six days and captured considerable Arab territory. Many people thought the Six-Day War to be miraculous and showed God's protection over Israel. I was in high school <coughs> during the Six-Day War. The Egyptian tank columns were devastated by the Israeli Air Force and hastily retreated across the desert. We used to say, joke and say, did you know the Egyptian tanks had 13 gears? Wow, one forward and 12 in reverse. <coughs> harsh maybe. <clears throat> Recapping where we are, we have looked at a number of scriptures that show God's word and prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus and also fulfilled in scattering the Jews and returning them again to Israel. Are you with me so far? I hope so. I hope you can say yes I believe that God's word is true. He has a plan for this world and I can trust him that he has a plan for my life. 2,520 years. Now, I'm going to talk a wee bit <coughs> about some application of thinking to prophecies and events that have happened. Various scholars have looked at the various dates, at ma dates of major events in Jewish history and Old Testament prophecies, and have ar arrived at some remarkable results that seem to demonstrate the fingerprint of God and prophecies fulfilled to the year. I'll need to give you the very, very short version of the reasoning involved and let you draw your own conclusions. <coughs> there are several Bible passages demonstrating that a biblical prophetic year consists of 360 days. This ties in with a peculiar account in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel we read of a time of punishment that God said would happen to the people of Israel and Judah. This was demonstrated by the prophet Ezekiel, most strangely having to lie on his right side and then his left side for 430 days. Each day would represent one year of punishment. I beg your pardon, each day would represent, yes, one year of judgment. That's 430 years. 
Now, when Nebuchadnezzar captured Jerusalem, the Jews were exiled to Babylon for 70 years. This can be taken from the 430, leaving 360 days or years of punishment still to happen. Robert, do you have that slide up there? Please? Yes, that's a wee summary of this. So a day for a year was 430 years, captivity in Babylon 70 years, which leaves the time remaining of 360 years. In Leviticus 26, we read that God would punish them seven times over for their sins. So this period of punishment becomes 360 years times seven, 2,520 years. This period of 2,520 years can be applied to Jewish history and produces several remarkable results, and I'll quickly go through them. Under the Gregorian calendar, which is the calendar we follow, there is this reasoning. If, if Nebuchadnezzar captured Jerusalem around 604-603 BC, then adding 2,520 years comes to 1917 year of the Balfour Declaration, granting the Jews homeland in Palestine, the same year when the British captured Jerusalem from the Turks. Now there's another slide there, Robert. It's, uh, however, using a, th a 360 day year calendar produces these results. So from the degree of Cyrus in 537 BC for the Jews to return to Babylon, adding 2,520 prophetic years comes to 1948 when Israel became a nation. From the decree of Artaxerxes who rebuilt the city plus 2,520 years, prophetic years comes to 1967 when the Israelis captured Jerusalem. So that's enough maths and dates. There is, however, some uncertainty around early historical dates, and I cannot absolutely verify these reasonings and interpretations. So during the week, I was thinking about this, and put, how much can I say? How, how can I say this is absolutely true? And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll, I've always had a big respect for Chuck Missler. So I thought, I'll ring up. Chuck Missler's organisation, Canonia House, and see what, what they say about it. So I rang these guys up and had a really nice chat, talked to a guy on the phone and said, yes, the man to answer that is Ron Matson. He's the man in charge of Canonia House. He said, Ron Matson will get back to you. So I was thinking, oh, will he ring me on, will he get back to me on Thursday? Will he get back to me on Friday? Maybe he'll send me an email on Saturday. He didn't. So, <coughs> sorry for the disappointment. Anyway, it wasn't quite the end of the story because last night I was sort of fiddling around on my computer and I, I typed in 2,520 days and I came up with an appraisal by Chuck Missler of, from Canonia House on exactly that picture. And it was Chuck Missler's take on this. And I thought, wow, that's rather good. And 
Anyway, I'll say what Chuck Missler said, the summary. He agreed that the dates arrived in 1948 and 1967 were remarkable coincidences, although he said the starting dates are not precise. He said they were provocative enough to ponder. So that's about as far as we can get from Chuck Missler. But I guess it's up to you, if you th for you to say, look, I think this is the fingerprint of God. I think it's an interesting coincidence. To me, a little bit of reinforcement from that is that this number 2520 can work both in the Gregorian calendar and it can work in the 360-year prophetic calendar. You know, that's two or three times for identifying major dates in the uh, life of the nation of Israel. To me, I'm thinking that that's, that's very impressive. Anyway, I'll leave that one up to you. Yet to me there is absolutely no doubt that the plan of God has been for the return of Jews to their original homeland in modern day Israel. This position is held by many prominent Bible scholars including Derek Prince, Chuck Missler and lots of others. Israel is the super sign that the coming of the Lord is drawing near. Modern Israel is a nation that has had to fight for its existence for the last 73 years. And whatever you may think about the political nation of Israel, I believe we should acknowledge it as a special sign in God's timeline for the world. Let us also consider the words of Jesus about Jerusalem. In Matthew 25, the disciples asked Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What will be the sign of your coming? In Luke 21, Jesus gives part of the answer. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And in verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, lift up your heads, raise up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. From this, I believe we can draw these conclusions. Jerusalem becomes a significant sign in end time events. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until a time period known as the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. The Jews will reoccupy the land of Israel before Jesus returns, and Jesus is coming again. The Son of Man, that is Jesus, is coming in clouds with power and glory, great glory. So what does all this mean for us? In summary, God's word is true. Bible prophecies are true. The prophecies about Jesus' first coming have been fulfilled. Prophecies about the return of Jews to Israel have been fulfilled. This is a super sign that the return of Jesus could be soon. Are you ready for this? How should we live? In the light of everything I've talked about, the big question is how should we live? Should our daily lives be different from the way they are now? A great scripture that sums up the basics of Christian living is 1 Timothy 1. The aim of our charge is love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
Other versions say the goal of our instruction should be these things. Having love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith is more important than a knowledge of prophetic events. The Apostle Peter spoke prophetically of a time when God would create new heavens and a new earth. And yet he addressed the Christians, the saints of his day, and said in 2 Peter chapter 3, Seeing all these things shall be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What sort of people ought you to be? Are you living the lives you should? Am I? If you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, would you live differently? Would I live differently? I think the answer is yes. Jesus spoke to his disciples in Luke 12, verse 35, and said, Be dressed for service, and keep your lamps burning. Then you will be like servants waiting for their master to return. I sometimes think about that and think, Am I waiting for the master to return? Am I ready? And there's a few things in life that I think I need to get sorted out. We also read about the wise and foolish virgins. Some were ready, some were not. I hope by God's grace we will all be ready and waiting for our master to return. Our lives should bring glory to Jesus. He's the coming king. He is the one we should be waiting for. I think this message is as much for me as it is for all of us. Maybe you are thinking, Lord, I know I need to do better. Help me to serve you better. I hope we'll let these words sink into our heart. And if anyone is wanting to do some earnest business with the Lord, there'll be people here after the service that can pray with you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for these things we've talked about, Lord. We just commit our lives into your hands. We pray that we'd be ready for your return. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To learn more about our church, visit c3chch.org.